0: Welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and our guest today is Professor Martin Gabala, renowned exercise researcher and author of The One Minute Workout. Martin is a professor and chair of the kinesiology department at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. His research on the physiological and health benefits of high-intensity interval training has attracted immense scientific attention and worldwide media coverage. Professor Gabala has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, the results of which have been featured by countless major news outlets. He is frequently invited to speak at international scientific meetings and has received multiple awards for teaching excellence. And as such, we are honored to have him on the podcast today. Marty, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me on. So before we jump into some of the research, can you give our listeners a bit of a background in terms of what got you down this track within your own personal experience and being time-pressed and so on?
2: Yeah, partly it was personal, partly it was professional. So I've been at McMaster for 20 years now and I've always taught a course called The Integrative Physiology of Human Performance. And so students are really interested in the training regimes of elite athletes. And so I use athletes as a prism to teach them a bit about the underlying physiology. And so one of the things that I would ask students is, why do these elite endurance athletes trained by using these short hard sprints how does that make sense and so that really resonated with students and at the same time I was a busy young assistant professor had two uh, two young children a working wife and so I was reading about this interval training research and thought maybe I'll try that on my own as well and so those two things sort of dovetailed into a line of research that's uh, continued to this day.
0: Excellent and we'll go through a couple background things too most people assume that high intensity interval training if they know much about systems in the body they assume that's anaerobic can you spell out kind of what anaerobic versus aerobic is for our listeners
2: Uh, sure so basically it comes down to how the body produces energy and whether you use oxygen or not so there's many different fuels that the body can use sugars and fats are the primary fuels for most forms of that fuel most activities that we do if we can use oxygen that provides a very efficient use of the fuel and it provides a lot of energy there's certain fuels a few sugars that we can use without the use of oxygen that can generate energy very very quickly but it runs out very fast as well and it's relatively inefficient so that's that's the main difference between the two
1: I remember working out back in undergrad, and we'd always be doing like our heavy weight lifting. And it was like, ah, nobody does cardio. And we'd be doing these high intensity sprints to be like, this is how we're going to get our aerobic training in. But there was always this big debate about, well, that's still anaerobic, isn't it? I think that's a misconception a lot of people have.
2: For sure. And, you know, if you do a single sprint up to about 30 seconds or so, most of the energy comes from the anaerobic processes without the use of oxygen. Mm -hmm. But almost any form of multiple sprints, even very short, very hard sprints repeated a couple of times, most of the energy is actually derived from oxidative metabolism or aerobic metabolism. And so it's quite surprising to people when they first learn that. But it also makes it perhaps not surprising that we have these significant responses and adaptations within Mm -hmm. the aerobic supply system uh, when we do these short, hard intervals. Mm
1: And now is a lot of that happening within the recovery periods that you take between the sprints?
2: Uh, Recovery periods can certainly influence uh, where the specific energy comes from. But even with relatively short recovery periods, a surprising amount of the energy comes from the aerobic metabolism during the actual sprints uh, themselves. Mm -hmm.
1: One of the most fascinating things about the uh, the book, The One Minute Workout, was when you detailed the history of. I think it was a marathon runner from, or he wasn't a marathon runner. He was a short distance runner when he was back in the 30s. Maybe I forget his name.
2: Yeah, there's a whole history of uh, fascinating uh, athletic performances there, going back to the flying fins and the Mm -hmm. days of uh, Pavo Nervi and and others. And and Roger Bannister would be another classic example. Right. You know, Bannister was a very busy medical student. And so he famously trained for his assault on the four minute mile by running these uh, basically 400 meter repeats Mm -hmm. on his lunch hour.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just amazing that you can train for these short intervals, and then I like said, oh, I'm going to do a marathon and run and still run an incredibly efficient marathon time. Yeah,
2: and I'm sure we might get into it. People often ask me, you know, could I run a marathon by only doing short, hard sprints? And, and my answer <laughs> is probably, but I, I don't think you'd necessarily run the best marathon you have in you.
0: Yes, yeah, because there's some skill specificity there needed.
1: And you might be a little beat up after. If you you haven't exposed your body to a consistent four-hour running and you've just done little sprints, there might be a little mechanical issue there at the end. Absolutely.
0: And some of it's the mental side of it, like doing a three, four, or five-hour race as just a, you know two and a half hours in, most people are ready to cry. <laughs> so that's where it's helpful if you've done that once or twice before, at least. Now, um, if we go back to the beginning, one of the cool things about your book, too, is that you detail the history of hits, which is really neat because it's, it was most often used in army training or elite athletes. Like There's a lot of, of history behind that, but the, in the lab, even your mentor didn't actually think that there was a huge, huge benefit to it. He said, oh yeah, they're good, but not as good. And you found that the key factor was intensity. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so you know, my bias uh, would be that how hard you work out matters more than how long you work out. Of course working out at all is good so if you're already doing that that's fantastic we talk about interval training just expanding the movement menu and so uh you know you know let me just digress a little bit i i th- you'll often see intervals versus traditional cardio and people set this up as as a debate and really try to demonize the other side and I, I don't necessarily have a lot of time for that um you know if you should do what you like and enjoy and and because you're more likely to stick with it but when i'm pushed uh, I would vote for intensity over duration or or volume uh, just because I, I, I think it you know the physiological adaptations are, are tremendous and it can be just a very time efficient way for many people to train and I think that resonates whether you're a highly trained athlete or whether you're a busy working mom who just wants to try and uh, stay in shape with relatively low time commitment
1: Yeah, I think that time commitment piece is really the key draw to a lot of the animal training stuff. But at the same token, I think a lot of people are almost intimidated by it because they hear intensity. And so somebody who might be a little overweight, they might not exercise at all, that might be even more intimidating than just saying, oh, I go for a run. I know I can do that. Whereas you're asking me to do a bunch of sprints. Well, I'm not fast, so is that kind of like an objection sometimes we hear with this kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, I like to use the term interval training, which is really just alternating periods of more intense effort with periods of recovery. And in something as simple as interval walking counts. So just picking up the pace for a few light posts and then backing off. And so there's a tremendous range of intensities. People hear hit or interval training and they think it's only these all out as hard as you can go workouts and so it's really an education of sorts uh, in order to highlight to people look you know interval walking counts and then the sky's the limit in terms of ramping it up and this type of research has just been applied so widely now to individuals with type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease metabolic syndrome people don't need to be afraid of interval training obviously at the individual level it's great to get screened uh, but generally speaking people don't need to be afraid of interval Interval training, and there's a type that is suitable for almost anyone. Mm-hmm.
0: We like that you touch on so many different types of it, and that I mean, you've been studying this since what 2004 or like early 2000s. Yes. So since then, you started initially on the bike with relatively uh, fit mid 20s, well, m- sorry, mid 20 year olds. But since then, you've applied it to multiple different domains, like walking's one of them. But you've also done body weight exercises, and then stairs. Am I correct in that?
2: Ye- yes. And and so in some ways, you know, to give credit where it's due, I think science, the scientific community, including us, we sort of rediscover interval training every few decades, right? If you look at the scientific publications, they date to the early 60s. And so I'm often sort of called the guru of interval training. I'm like, no, actually, <laughs> there's been folks doing it for a while now, <laughs> right? So, yeah, yeah. It, it, Exactly. And so uh, you're right, though. We started out with these tests uh, known as a Wingate test. Wizards requires specialized equipment. You can think of sprinting on a cycle at a pace to save your child from an oncoming car. They're they're very challenging. And over time, we've tried to take interval training out of the lab and use these more practical strategies like stair climbing uh, that can be applied almost anywhere. They don't require specialized uh, equipment. And, you know, this goes back to the days of, of 5BX, which was a workout program uh, that was designed by uh, a former hockey player who became an exercise physiologist working for the Defense Department, and he was charged with keeping uh, airmen, that was all men at the time, fit on Air Force bases in the early 1960s. It was wild.
0: although you will you do note that there are some exercises within the 5bx in case anyone looks it up that you shouldn't do namely the sit-ups and maybe the toe touches for time don't do those either please
2: (laughs) you you can now use a modified 5bx
1: plan and that's where you guys come in exactly (laughs) we're always progressing we're always learning new things um and, and i love the the lamppost to lamppost thing and i think the psychology of this is also very very important because again if you tell a new client that who doesn't do a lot of exercise that you have to do these intervals and there's lots of intervals it can be really intimidating but if you just tell them hey go for a walk walk really fast until you're kind of out of breath and then take take a break or take go slowly and then go again and you wrote about this in your book and you're like hey that's interval training like you're doing it so it's it's just that psychology of if somebody's like I can't go for a run I just get too tired I have to stop and it's negative, you flip that on its head, and then it's like, I'm just doing intervals. I can do anything.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a mind reset. And for a lot of people, as you would well know, starting out, even the lowest intensity exercise, trying to sustain that for 30 minutes is very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost empowering to people to know, I can take a break, that's okay. And you're like, yeah. You know, elite athletes have been doing that since the turn of the century. So...
0: (laughs) Now, speaking of which, you have some protocols that are as short as eight seconds listed in your book, which is fascinating. And then you have other ones that extend three to five minutes. Can you touch on where athletes versus, you know, your person who's just getting off of the couch may see benefits because obviously both populations have been proven to benefit from HIT training, but they benefit in different ways.
2: Yeah, and I would say all of those protocols could be applied effectively across the fitness range. The key of course is what's the absolute intensity that the individual is working at. And when I give scientific talks now, there's a graph that I always show, it's from another group, but what it's depicting is an actual heart rate tracing of two individuals on the far end of the fitness scale doing the exact same interval training program, and that's four four-minute hard efforts. One tracing is from an Olympic athlete, and one tracing is from a coronary heart disease patient. Obviously, the pace on the treadmill is quite different, but both the individuals are working at 90 to 95% of their individual maximal heart rate, and so it's a really striking example to people that wow, you really can scale this appropriately.
0: Yeah, incredible.
1: And on that note, this is another thing that you do discuss in the book, is how, how do you actively measure how hard is someone working? Because with the Wingate test, you can test the VO2 max, you can test heart rate, but these measures can be a bit misleading. So what do you tell people?
2: Yeah. And so again, it depends on the audience, right? If we have a highly trained athlete in who's really dialed into their fitness, they're going to want to know what zone am I in or maybe use lactate threshold or lactate testing or some sort of heart rate measurements to really dial it in. But for a lot of people, they don't have access to that and really don't care. and and so bringing it back to a zero to 10 scale can be really effective. You know, just using ratings of perceived exertion and trying to illustrate to people, you know, zero is we're sitting in a chair right now. Uh, 10 is that sprint from danger pace or save your child from an oncoming car. And so in, in the book, I tried to put protocols. Uh, this is a six out of 10 pace. Okay, this is an eight or nine out of, mm-hmm. out of uh, 10 pace. And so just that subjective ratings of perceived exertion can be really effective for a lot of folks
0: it also helps them respond to how they're feeling that day right like if they're a little bit more tired that eight is going to feel rather different than what they did the week before at that quote unquote same eight
2: absolutely the other just quickly the other interesting thing we'll see sometimes is this disconnect between relative effort and how that is perceived Mm -hmm. and doing vigorous exercise continuously is quite different from inserting some breaks. And so we need a bit of a rethink in terms of, you know, these broad statements that, well, if we prescribe exercise intensity above lactate threshold, no one will do it because it's uncomfortable. But it's like, no, if you give people the opportunity to take some breaks, uh, it totally changes their perception of the workout.
0: Do you recall you mentioning that, that uh, the interval training in the moderate exercise group as compared to a vigorous continuous exercise group rated it as far more enjoyable both during and afterwards
2: yeah and so right now I I think you could cherry-pick the studies to make your case either way and I (laughs) think that's because people are complicated but certainly some people like and enjoy interval training Mm -hmm. more Um, and again, the other analogy I'll use is there's only so many ways to jump on a treadmill and jog at a moderate pace for 45 minutes to an hour interval training, the sky's limit in terms of of variety. And so it just really expands that movement menu or the options to to choose from. And some of us, you know, on a given day, you might prefer a continuous walk in the woods or you might prefer some short, hard sprints. And so again, this siloing mentality, I, I think there's little value there and it's really just expanding it out some people are going to like and enjoy interval training more uh, and uh, and it's certainly a viable option for for a lot of folks
0: well it goes right back to your point at the beginning if it's something that they enjoy rather than dread they'll stick to it and that ultimately is what reduces all sorts of mortality risks
1: yeah I mean for any exercise whether it's working out or or running whatever I think, as coaches, as researchers, we want to make it as easy and enjoyable as possible. That's really the biggest barrier for people.
2: It's a bit like you'll get the question, Well, should I work out in the morning or at night oh, that, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, yes, if you work out in the morning after you're fasted, maybe you'll burn a few more grams from fat. But if you are actually not a morning person or you absolutely hate morning workouts, that message is lost on you,
0: <laughs> especially if you look at some of the circadian stuff that's coming out now too, right like you just forcing yourself to operate uh, especially doing intervals or anything really active for some people just makes them feel really depressed and unwell it's not worth it yeah
1: yeah and with all the i mean there's so much research out there you can just it can be just paralysis by analysis right so it's Try not to worry about the fine print is we know that exercise is good. So find <laughs> find a dose, find a type, and just work it in when you can do it, right? And I think that's a big message that you try and tell people.
2: Yeah, agree. And, you know, we do all of this neat, what I think is neat physiology stuff, but my colleagues who are exercise and health psychologists, some of their work I think is most important because they're talking about how do we – you know things like exercise adherence. How do we motivate people to exercise over the the long term, and what are some strategies that we can use in that regard?
0: Actually, on that note, you mentioned uh, two things. One was movement snacks, but then the other one is just introducing the lowest dose to try to kind of hook. People in. Can you elaborate on what you mean by movement snacks for the people listening?
2: Yeah, so exercise snacks—it's—it's it's not a coin or a term that we coin, but we've recently started referring to sprint snacks. And <laughs> you know, snacking we generally think is—is—is is, uh, is not great for us, but exercise snacks uh, are really good for us. And so, really, that's just this idea of bite-sized. Uh, small time commitment exercise that you can sort of fit in anywhere. And so, you know, we have, we hear these messages, well, take the stairs when you come to work in the morning or take the stairs at lunch. We've actually tested that in the lab and as little as, A 20-second burst of stair climbing, that's a few flights of stairs in the morning, at lunch, and before you leave from the day, if you do that a couple times a week, after a couple of weeks, you can see a measurable improvement in your fitness. And so, again, just these strategies to build exercise into your day. For a lot of folks, they think, if I don't have an hour in the day, it's not worth working out. And so, again, it's a mindset change. Even as little as a minute or so can be really effective.
1: And that reminded me of one of the things I enjoyed the most from your, uh, your recent MOOC um, – <laughs> I'll let you explain that term in a second um, – that you did with Stu Phillips. I think it's called Hacking Exercise. And you gave the example of wringing a sponge out into a bucket. And it's just to say like exercise and the benefits of it are kind of like a sponge. The first time you wring out a sponge, you get a ton of water out. And that's kind of like exercise. Do it for a minute. You're going to wring out the like the most of the benefit you're going to get from it. And of course, you're going to keep ringing out some more and more and more the more you do it. But that first little bit, dipping the toe in the water, just getting it started is the biggest effect. So can you elaborate on that a bit?
2: Yeah. So just quickly, a, a MOOC is a massive open <laughs> online course. Uh, and so Stu Phillips and I uh, with um, expert colleagues at McMaster have created this uh, freely available online course. It's about 25-5 minute modules that's designed to give people exercise hacks, how to fit it into your day, what's a little bit of the underlying uh, physiology. Uh, The sponge is Stu's analogy, and it's a really good one, and you're right. It's this idea that you can get a lot by doing a little, and then there's diminishing returns after that. You know the old question, how many sets of bench should I do, right? (laughs) Well, if you do one set of bench, it can be pretty effective, right? Three sets, you're probably going to get a little bit more, but it's not linear. And so again, it comes back to this idea that uh, a lot of bang for your buck with uh, relatively small time commitments can be really effective.
1: That's great. And so let's just take a little a little uh, sideways tour here. Um, so we know that there are great health benefits from high intensity interval training. Um, we know it can help you lose weight. How is this relevant to aging populations?
2: Yeah, so we know that older individuals can perform and benefit from interval training. Uh, obviously, the considerations start to be older individuals. Are there potential some silent underlying risk factors from a cardiac perspective that they need to be mindful of? And so I think if you're an older individual, and you know, older is a relative term, of course, but <laughs> certainly individuals, you know, 40 years of age and, and older, ideally checked by the physician, right, before they engage in exercise. But I think it's really important for people to remember, and I know we have a captive audience here, that the greater risk to your health is just remaining sedentary. And so for my book, I interviewed an individual named Paul Thompson, one of the leading uh, cardiologists, exercise cardiologists in the world, uh, and he made the point. You know, look, if if you're an older individual, you probably want to start out doing a little bit of moderate stuff. But if your choice uh, is HIT or doing nothing, he'd advocate for HIT. Uh, and so again, I think we just got to be smart uh, as you're as you're getting older, manage some risk a little bit. The other is uh, musculoskeletal injuries, and this is where the type of interval training really comes into play. Uh, you know, if you have some joint issues, then Pounding out the track is probably not going to be your best call, but certainly you can ramp up intensity with rowing, swimming, cycling—lots of different ways to do it. So uh, I think this where the help of you know a a good trainer, a certified exercise professional, can really help you there in terms of guiding you and what choices might be appropriate. Yeah, which
0: ones? And so with that too, when it comes to it being sort of like a, a young person's game and then expanding your research from younger people to different populations through there. Is there anything remarkable that you sort of noticed within the older populations as far as uh, stuff that you weren't expecting necessarily?
2: Maybe the first one is just that People can do this stuff. And so when we were starting out, you know, one of our earlier studies, you know, beyond young healthy individuals was a group of overweight or obese type 2 diabetics. I think the mean age was early 60s. And we were having people do uh, 10 one minute vig- vigorous cycling bouts at about 90% of their maximal heart rate. And first of all, once they were cleared to enter into this study... Uh, they were able to do the workout, Uh, they improved extremely quickly, you know, with even within a few sessions, we have to change the the power outputs and that because people adapt very, very quickly. And a lot of them said, you know what, I actually like that type of training, I prefer that certainly to a, you know, a a real long uh, bike ride. So that'd be point number one. And I think point number two would just be the physiological responses. Again, they're scaled uh, appropriately, but they Older individuals can robustly respond, and so I think the message there is it's never too late to start, uh, and and we can see that literally on the molecular and and cellular level. You know, maybe a little bit different for some of the things that Stu Phillips is looking at in terms of the muscle hypertrophy and that, but certainly some of these cellular responses that we're seeing in terms of aerobic metabolism, uh, there's a robust response even these uh, older individuals.
1: Is there anything specific that you would say to the cardiac rehab population or anybody who has, you know, a history of cardiac events within the family who might be a little bit afraid of doing something that's overtly intense because they don't want to risk having a heart attack, for example?
2: Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. My first one is always, you know, I'm a PhD researcher. I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not a cardiologist. And so I think it's important to get that physician uh, uh, opinion. You know, if you look, my view of the literature right now is there's some medical organizations that are saying, "Bring this on, right?" And in in Norway, for example, interval training is um, highly embedded in cardiac rehab programs. And there's other groups that are a little bit more conservative, saying, "You know what? I'd like to see a little bit more evidence uh, before we adopt this uh, widely." And so I, I think that's fair. Those are just different perspectives. Everyone's looking at the same literature. Uh, from my perspective. Again, I come back to this comment that people don't need to be afraid of interval training uh, just because there are just countless studies now, and even what we call systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which are uh, a a broad collective view of the science in in a given area. um, One of the biggest benefits for interval training is that it's better for improving cardiorespiratory fitness so that's the cardio health that we traditionally think about it reflects the underlying ability of the heart the blood vessels lungs to transport oxygen through the body and there's just multiple multiple systematic reviews now saying when you compare on an apples to apples basis so a given dose of exercise intervals are better than continuous training uh, in individuals with cardiometabolic disease heart disease type 2 diabetes
0: which is really quite fascinating. You looked at, at one point in your research, um, why that was the case. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered there?
2: Yeah, why in terms of...
0: Why was it having such a big bang for buck?
2: Y- yeah, and, and so you know if you go back to first principles so what you know what is cardiorespiratory fitness well it's an objective measure of the maximum rate of oxygen transport and utilization in in the body Uh, we measure that objectively by using a maximal oxygen uptake or vo2 max test Uh, and it's dependent on a lot of underlying complex physiology but you can imagine either your muscles get better at using the oxygen that's delivered or your cardiovascular system gets better at delivering the blood and oxygen And it's really a bit of a debate right now. Uh, Certainly, muscles respond very robustly, and so there's evidence of a a, a component of, of muscle called mitochondria. This is a network that uses the oxygen to produce energy. We see mitochondria remodeling very, very quickly. The cardiovascular side, it's uh, in some ways, it's a little bit more challenging to, to study, uh, and so there's less evidence that of, of heart remodeling, but this is a really active area of research, uh, and it may be that at least initially, you have rapid muscle adaptations, and the cardiovascular system sort of lags behind a little bit, which is opposite to what we typically see happening with traditional endurance exercise, where we can see very rapid cardiovascular changes so if you're a physiologist like me this is you know you're really interested in basic mechanisms and so it it keeps you really interested to try and
1: help sort this out a bit yeah
0: interesting no it really is
1: yeah that's uh (laughs) <laughs> For those out there who are not entirely sure, what is the mitochondria? What does it do? I mean, these are the powerhouses of our cells. These are how we do basically anything. <laughs> and so when you have more mitochondria or stronger mitochondria, you are able to do more things and you're able to do more things more easily. That's basically a high-level overview of exactly, you have more energy. And it, seemingly now with all the research coming out, it's almost every chronic disease out there can be related back to sick or poor mitochondrial health. So if you can have this type of exercise that is building more of them or helping you repair older ones, I mean, it's such a massive tool for somebody to have in their tool belt, and it's something that more and more I've been getting to use with a lot of my clients. Yeah,
2: certainly you're right. You know, mitochondrial dysfunction is implicated in a lot of diseases. Obviously, these all have complex etiology and multiple mechanisms and that, but for example, generally people who have uh, type 2 diabetes have a lower mitochondrial content. Now, whether that's cause and effect or correlational, uh, you know, again, it is a debate, but the point is that uh, low mitochondrial capacity is associated with many of these uh, chronic uh, diseases, just like low cardiospiratory fitness is associated with your risk of developing cardiovascular disease uh, and, uh, and, frankly, a higher risk of dying from all causes. And so if you can move either of those needles, the cardiovascular capacity or mitochondrial content, generally it's going to be a good thing for you.
0: <laughs> Big time. <laughs> um, now... Thank you very much. (laughs) I do need the mic. So with all that said, with the attention and, and the amount of time that has been spent in this field by yourself and by other labs, do you see the needle in terms of physical activity guidelines moving? Because right now it's 150 minutes per week total that they want people to commit to. We know that that can be done a little bit less, but it would be nice to see that included. Yeah, and
2: I, I get that question a lot. Why don't we see interval training in the public health guidelines? Uh, for my book, I interviewed some of the folks that literally write the public health guidelines uh, in the US. And, and so I, I can appreciate from their perspective the level of evidence that you want to see. And so generally, the level of evidence is if people do this amount of exercise, they will die less and they will develop cardiovascular disease less and right now the interval training research from that lens is is not really there you know we we we're showing all these great physiological benefits all these health related markers but we don't necessarily have the grade a evidence that the people that write the public health guidelines would like to see to use a pharmaceutical analogy i'll, I'll sometimes say you know if if the current public health guidelines are the drug of choice for this condition Interval training, it's like the new emerging drug on the market, showing a lot of promise in early phase trials, but we don't have these large-scale, long-term, randomized clinical trials comparing intervals versus uh, the traditional uh, approach. Mm -hmm. You know, the U.S. guidelines were just recently updated. One small change was that they eliminated the previous requirement that exercise had to take place in bouts of 10 minutes or longer because really that wasn't substantiated by scientific evidence, and it fits with some of the snacking research that's coming out. I would like to think eventually you might see a recommendation that says something like, 150 minutes a week of vigorous, or sorry, 150 minutes a week of moderate, 75 minutes of vigorous, or 30 minutes of intense intervals uh, will will fit. Last point I would make is that for, say you play ice hockey, Mm -hmm. typically you're on every third shift. Mm -hmm. Is that 20 minutes of intervals or is that an hour workout and when I asked uh some of the folks that write the public health guidelines they said no no that would count as an hour because you're working so hard during the uh, intervals the recovery periods count as well so if that helps you to get to your 150 minutes a week go for it
0: yes at the sports clinic I worked at, we had a competition where for, I think, three months, everybody accumulated all their points towards activity. And so every half hour accounted for, say, one point. Um, but the only thing that you couldn't get points for, uh, sorry, that you got half points for were things like restorative yoga or, <laughs> you know, floating in a sauna. <laughs> Everything else had to be above a certain threshold to, to count.
1: Now... You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think some of the early returns of your research showed that men responded more favorably than women did to interval training. Is that correct, and has there been any new research on this? It is correct,
2: Like everything in science, it's a bit debatable, but certainly in our own research, we found that in some markers more related to carbohydrate metabolism or how well muscles took up glucose, for example, we saw some subtle differences between men and women. Uh, As we've pursued that, um, we're seeing... Less of a difference, and and sometimes it depends. How are you measuring? Are you looking at the acute response to a bout? Are you looking at a more prolonged bout? Uh, suffice to say, it remains an active area of interest for our research group as well as others. It also depends a little bit. How do you compare men and women, right? And so uh, you often want to compare based on their fitness relative to their fat-free mass. And so, you know, getting get into the weeds a little bit, but if you really want to tease out are there biological sex differences, how you design your experiments and actually make the comparison is actually uh, quite important. There's, yeah. there's probably some small, subtle differences in, in certain markers, but the bottom line is that both uh, men and women robustly respond to interval training, yeah. and it might even be more, there's, to my mind, there's more inter-individual differences in responses, regardless of biological sex. Uh, You know, some women are going to respond robustly. Some women are not, just like some men and women, or some men are, are as well.
0: Yes. And, and uh, now there's the debate about whether women are better at ultra, ultra, ultra distances. Mm. <laughs> They're trying to see if like, OK, maybe if you push it past that 150 miler, is that where it sort of evens out? And I, I think that debate's going to go on forever. Well,
2: you know, it's, uh, to touch on that, it's one of the things that I include in that integrative uh, course that I mentioned mm. at the outset. And, you know, long distance open water swimming is actually one of the areas where some of the world records are higher in, in women. And there's some good physiological reasons for, for why that might be. Uh, you know, some of the things that are generally seen as a disadvantage on land, higher obligatory body fat and things like that, are actually an advantage during long-water swimming, especially cold-water swimming. So, again, it depends how you compare, Right.
0: I was going to say, not this female. <gasps> Cold water <laughs> swimming like kiss of death for me.
2: <laughs> I always joke that any swim workout for me is an interval workout because I'm not technically very good. And so you swim a few lengths, <laughs> you huff and puff, and then you do it again.
1: See, we actually go swimming once, or once at least once a week, a week, once yeah. once or twice a week. And uh, I, joke Freya had an injury there not too long ago, and uh, now she's back up to full speed in the pool. And I she joked the, o- I, I joked the other day. It's like, man, now I have to work again because before it's like, okay, now I could go at my leisurely, half-drowning pace, <laughs> just kind of behind Freya. But now she's motoring again. And I'm like, all right, so now this is interval training for me again, and it's a lot harder of a workout.
0: <laughs> in fairness, he was trying to catch up to a gimp who had one arm to swim with. <laughs> And a spine that couldn't stabilize, so I would veer into the right rope lane. So, like, yeah, he's working harder now. We'll put it that way.
1: Not a complaint, but uh, I'm getting more bang for my buck, one might say. Yes. So, speaking about swimming, um, I think we've already touched base on this a little bit about the different forms that you can use. So, for somebody out there who might not exercise because they might have, you know, a knee issue or something, or a musculoskeletal issue, or they just feel like they're fairly deconditioned, where should they start?
2: Uh, we'll often suggest to people just get out of your comfort zone. So wherever, where that is to start again, people have a pretty good sense of where they are. And so, you know, just pick up the pace a little bit. You're feeling your heart rate, get up a little more than usual, you're getting a little more out of breath than usual, and then take a break and repeat that a couple of times. And again, very simple language, but a lot of people can appreciate this idea of just transiently moving out of my comfort zone, wherever that is right now, uh, backing off and repeating that a couple of times.
0: Um, and they're showing that in terms of, uh, a marker of longevity as <laughs> people's walking speed decreasing over time. So if they introduce these slightly faster bursts, I can see it may carry over to that. And, um, with regards to body weight movements and applying those in intervals, my first exposure to that was with Tabatas. I'm sure you might've heard of this thing called CrossFit <laughs> about 12 years ago. That was the first thing that like Tabatas were the first things that we had tried as far as interval training with body weight did you have something you want to add
1: I was just going to say that my first introduction to Tabata's was putting them at the very end of an already like hour and a half long weight training oh, yeah. workout and doing squats and keeping a lot of weight on the bar just trying to be a hero Ooh. and doing Tabata and it's like no wonder it didn't feel great
0: Okay, so I did them with body weight uh squats. <laughs> uh what what would you say are your personal top 4 body weight exercises that you may apply to intervals?
2: Uh push-ups, air squats, uh pull-ups if you can, and maybe some sort of lunge type movement uh you know i'll get criticized for not saying burpees because uh i was i was asked one time in an interview if you could only do one exercise what would it be and my vote was for burpees uh just because i think it's a fantastic exercise but pretty challenging over the long term but on the spot those would probably be uh the four of course you know multi-joint movements you can pretty Mm -hmm. much do them anywhere of course body weight style upper and lower and uh arguably functional
1: movements as well
0: push-pull, unilateral balance, all things that people should be concerned about within their training.
1: Yeah, I mean, burpees, they kind of include a little bit of everything, right? And if you do them correctly then that's great. But I think one of the biggest issues with a burpee is that it turns into a yard sale after doing an interval of two of them, right? So yeah, if you can work in anything where it has the push, the pull, the squat, the lunge, all that, and mix in the different movement patterns, that's where I think, you know, again, more bang for the buck.
2: Just <laughs> on the topic of bodyweight training, it's funny, you know, most people know bodyweight training from Tabatas, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and, you know, you go back to the original Tabata research, it was actually done on a bike, it had nothing yeah. to do with yeah. uh, <laughs> bodyweight training, yeah. and then it was sort of uh, taken over, if you will. Um, but now there's, a resurgence of scientific interest in bodyweight style training uh, and I'll you know often uh, make the point I I, I, it's a really great hybrid style you know you're not going to get the cardio benefits that you if you only did exclusively cardio uh, and you're not going to get the muscle mass and strength gains if you did heavy heavy strength training but it's a great middle ground exercise and again you can do it anywhere no specialized equipment uh, effective for both strength and cardio development.
1: Yeah, uh, Frey and I both do quite a lot of animal flow, mm-hmm. which is a body weight movement modality. Freya is one of a handful of master instructors across the world, um, and I've been lucky enough to learn a lot from her, but it's a cool system because you can, again, you can use it in so many different ways, and high intensity is one of those ways, and uh, you can get an amazing workout just by doing a few intervals of a little flow. It's great.
2: Absolutely, and again, you know, uh, so many different options to choose yeah. from. Right. So So.
0: that's why we always say there's all if you don't like this, it's okay. we can find something else. Like there's always something else that we can uh, find that we can enjoy. What keeps you driven?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, the the scientific, the innate scientific curiosity, you know, we're really lucky and privileged Mm -hmm. to be university professors. Right. There's not a lot of jobs where you get to come to work and pursue questions Mm -hmm. that are of interest to you. And, and I get paid to do that, which is really, really cool. Um, you know, since uh, early university, my early, actually, I so I was going to be an architect. I was accepted into architecture school out of high school. I had a very influential uh, grade 13 at the time teacher who was doing triathlons. And he got me interested in fitness and physiology. And it led me to human kinetics at the University of Windsor. And and so ever since then, I've been able to study uh, exercise physiology and using exercise to try and understand the limits of, of the physiological systems. It's, it's just, uh, it's fantastic.
0: It's true. It is really cool. You get to just be curious and ask questions every day. All right. Uh, we have a few final wrap up questions. These are ones that we ask every single guest. So the listeners know to impact these. So, uh, with the very first one, what is the most impactful book that you've read in the last year? (laughs) <laughs> just oh, we love asking academics <laughs> this because it's like <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
2: yeah I'll, I'll uh this is my first time i'm going to take the mulligan here
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's all, yeah. The one minute workout <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly that's what immediately came to my head Right. Yeah. <laughs> next yeah. question yeah, and then maybe we'll come we back um
0: what is your be non-negotiable you. self-care tool or habit
2: it's got to be exercise, physical activity. Make sure you're getting it in 100%. Yep. Awesome.
0: We're big fans of that.
1: <laughs> and is that – do you do you have a, a routine or is it like your schedule is kind of all over? You just get it in when you can get it in?
2: Quasi routine. So pretty much do something every day. Generally, switch in between bodyweight style, interval training. I have a classic uh, garage gym in my nice. basement, though, nice. right? And, and so. <laughs> Power rack, pretty fundamental stuff, right? Uh, And then uh, cycling is my go-to cardio workout. Just uh, I I can't run anymore. uh, And and so... I do a lot of interval cycling. Uh, I play hockey, ice hockey once nice. a week. I'd like to play more and, <laughs> and, and be better. So I, I, I think if you looked at my weekly routine, it's pretty similar, but I'm not so fixed in terms of uh, when I do it. You know, right. If it's a busy day, I'll get it out of the way in the morning. Uh, I can also go home late at night and, uh, and do it. That's different from my colleague, Stu Phillips, yes. who has to work out first thing in the morning, or as he puts it, the battery drains through the day. Mm-hmm. And if 3 o'clock comes
1: and he hasn't worked out, it's not happening, right? Yeah, Freya's more like Stu, and I'm more like you. I'm like, I can get it in.
0: noon, I'm, like, buzzing. I can't even focus. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and again, everyone's a little bit different. Um, So kind of that same vein, if you had five minutes with someone, what one thing would you try and impart to help them with their well-being?
2: Again, I'm going to sound like the broken record here, but I I think I would convey to them the importance of fitness. So this fitness, it's this thing, cardiorespiratory fitness, it's really linked to your risk of dying and developing all these diseases. And it's really important for health span. We worry so much about lifespan, but fitness allows you to live close to the ceiling for as long as you can. And so your period of time when you're debilitated it's, it's very short at the end it's not starting when you're 50 years old and you live for 30 or 40 years you know in in a very uh, limited state so exercise it's not a panacea for everything but it's pretty darn close in terms of things that it can do for you
1: I absolutely love the term health span. I was having this conversation with a client just a few days ago, and he was commenting on the healthy habits that I have and why I do what I do, and I said, it's not so I can live forever. I know I'm not going to live forever, but I want all of my years to be valuable, and to me, that's my driving force, and I think that's something a lot of people don't really think about. They think there's, it's just we're trying to live as long as possible. It's like, no, we're all, we're all going to go at some point. You just want to make sure that you can enjoy every breath that you get.
2: Yeah, as Stu reminds me, mortality rate's 100%, because I'm often talking about yeah. you know, reduced mortality <laughs> risks, and I'm just like, no, it's your risk of dying in a given period of time. We're, yeah. we're all going to get there eventually, <laughs> eventually, but hopefully it's going to be yes. relatively late <laughs> in the game for, uh, for most of us.
0: Well, yeah, one of my aunts, had. A, she, she would say, there are only two things in life you should do. So we're all uh, pretty type A kids, so she would help us out in that manner. And the second of those two things, the first one is totally out of contr- your control. And the second one of your two things is also out of your control, but it, you, you should die. <laughs> She's like, at some point, you should die. So make sure that the in-between of when you're born and when you die is, is some stuff that you know that you understand the gray zones that are in there. There's no should.
2: <laughs> and you know, just that idea of fitness, so many people focus on weight loss, and I get it, right? We all want to yeah. look good and, and, and look good in the mirror at the beach, but um, fitness it's so much more important than body weight in terms of health effects and much more attainable and much more easy to move the dial with uh, some some fitness yeah. than you know trying to lose massive amounts of weight which are mm-hmm. clearly just so challenging for a lot of folks and so again an empowering messages worry a little bit less about the number on the scale worry more about the fitness side of it
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah and you feel better too and like the number on the scale, people can drop a lot of weight and feel like crap and they're technically their their health markers are worse and it, it's very easy to lose sight of that with everything that we have online with social media, which is not ideal. Which brings us to our last question, actually. Are you on social media?
2: <laughs> <laughs> not as much as my colleagues do, Phillips. <laughs> yes. uh, I do have a website, uh, martinkabala.com, where people can go and learn a little bit more uh, about my book, about our research, uh, about other uh, podcasts. MOOC. <laughs> about the MOOC. Uh, and uh, I am on Twitter Twitter, uh, at Kabbalah M. You can find me, uh, find me there.
0: Okay. We'll link it all in.
1: Great. Well, man, I think we packed a lot into, uh, it was about 45 minutes. We packed a lot of questions, a lot of answers into that. So I guess, thank you. Thank you so much for having us here. This is our second time to McMaster university yes. to, uh, interview somebody here. So it was, uh, great to speak to you. And, uh, well, thanks to you for, uh, sending along your contact information
0: and, uh, just thank you again for making the time. We really appreciate it. And it every time we have been here makes us want to come back to school because it's exciting.
2: <laughs> appreciate you making the trip and having me on.
1: Yeah. All right, thank Marty.
2: So Talk much. to you later.
1: We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.